Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 58. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm pleased to have on my show James Pete Massa. He's a consultant to industry, government, and, and not-for-profit. He has a lot of large industry and government experience, a 25-year successful career in high tech. He uh, retired in June of 2006 after being for, uh, with Cisco Systems for 14 years, where he held various vice president and chief strategist positions. He has been involved in the government, held a top security or a security clearance, and involved in industry support of government in response to the 9-11 attacks. I'd like to list, learn a little bit more about that. And he's been involved in a lot of successful startups, too. And he's a uh, associated with uh, uh, Dr. John Holes and John Maxwell's Equip Foundation. So he's an all-around guy passionate about leadership, both in business and home and life. And uh, and James, welcome to Those of Leadership. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you and I were talking right before the recording and how, um, and I know for me, I learned late in life that uh, I focus so much on leadership and on the career side of it, to, to the neglect of, of the relationships at home and with my family. And uh, talk to me about that. That's one thing that struck me when you sent me the initial email and we talked about having this kind of integrated, this balanced um, life or leadership life, and uh, that we, we, we don't really learn that until sometimes it's too late. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I did learn early on that you know, leadership is often thought about in the workplace or the political place or the education place, the people neglect the leadership necessary in the home or even in your personal life that you have a, a leadership responsibility there. And, and being able to be a leader is not something that's isolated to one of those areas of your life. I mean, leadership is, is a quality that is much like your your height and weight, you know, when you're when you're present and you're a leader, sometimes you don't choose to lead because there's others who are more appropriate for that position and time. But you still have the skills, you still have the orientation towards leadership, and you you have almost a responsibility to apply that leadership in all aspects of your life. So when you do that, I believe you're more balanced. I believe you're more effective across the board, and I believe it helps you actually become a better leader when you're a more balanced leader as well. Where did it start for you? I mean, have you, were you, did you, tell me a little bit more about your upbringing, your background. I don't know really much about you, so tell me how it all started for you. When did you start becoming passionate about leadership or understanding the value of leadership? Well, you know, uh, as a young man, I was involved in athletics, and so athletics, 
gave me an opportunity to see uh, leadership. I ended up playing basketball through high school, through college, and, and those sorts of things. And, and as you are involved with other people who are trying to achieve some level of excellence, whether it be in a, a small local community team or whether it be on something much grander than that, you always have a coach. And you always have people who are captains and used to have these natural leadership things where they inspire you to do more than what you would be able to do without their leadership. And I think I caught that, you know, internally long before I consciously was aware of it. Mm, yeah. and, and, and as I lived that out, then, of course, the there were some leadership skills that had uh, that other people saw. I mean, you know... I found myself striving for that excellence and, and for myself personally or for for the organization I was involved in. In this case, it was athletic teams, and and people followed, you know. And so when you're a leader, people follow. That's kind of part of that definition of what happens right. there. And then there becomes a little bit of responsibility. And what occurred for me was is some key men in my life started pulling me aside and, and making me consciously aware of the leadership. And I remember, again, at, this, at a youthful level, high school level, I remember uh, playing, I was, I was a basketball player, I remember having these young boys that run underneath the basket, they'd catch the ball, they'd throw it out to you, they were so excited to be around an older person, you know, it was a big deal, you know, right. it'd be a big game, the band playing, everything like that. And I remember a ball hit my hand, and I had a an expletive. <laughs> it was like, ouch. <laughs> and it was a full other expletive. And all these kids looked at me, and I realized, oh my gosh, these kids, I actually influenced them. Because yeah. they, they, they were just stunned, you know? And, 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 and then it started echoing in my mind all those things that those coaches were saying to me that, hey, you know, whether you're on the court or off the court, people are watching you. And I think that's probably where the integrated leadership thing started to occur. Yeah, you know, I was talking with... Uh someone last week and we were talking about integrity and accountability and and you know when you go up and you ask somebody are you you know fully living your life with integrity and I think you'd almost ask everybody and they would say yes but the reality is um, I don't know if too often we really do meet the mark what it truly means to be fully accountable and fully doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing even when no one's looking and I think that if more people were more courageously authentic about that or that truth, um, you're going to become a better leader. And um, I don't know, I guess, what do you think about that when you hear that? I mean, that's just something I've been kind of watching and, and seeing and, and observing out of people, uh, especially this past month. Well, it's interesting. The, the accountability is important. And I believe as a leader, you want to be accountable to others. Now, you know, as a as a chairman of the board of a public company, you're accountable to the rest of the board and to the shareholders. And as the CEO, you're accountable to not only the board, but also to all the shareholders and the employees. I mean, those leadership positions have a great degree of accountability. And some of my startup uh, ventures, one of the things that I have asked for early on is to establish a board of directors so that I have accountability. And so often people will come to you and they'll say, we want you to lead, we want you to do this, and they want to give you almost carte blanche authority. And what I always respond with is, is that I need to have the accountability because I think I have great integrity. But, you know, I learned that a lot of times people have breaches in, in, in their ideal morality or their ideal integrity only because the opportunity presents itself and there's a situation where you don't have an accountability scenario, and then people just stumble, you know, right, and right. hey, you're human and I'm human. And, and so 
to build that structure immediately is a leadership step. And being able to have accountability is part of the leadership. You don't give up your leadership just because you're accountable. Right. You just actually become better at it. Yep, I agree. And I think that's something that's, that's so missing. You hit it right on the head. You know, having a board of directors that can hold you accountable and where you can have um, – and that's with re- not just a board of directors, but relationships in life with people that you can sit there and they can hold – you can hold each other accountable. You can be courageously authentic. And to me, I think that's the key. I think that's a key to relationships. That's the key to success. That's a key to uh, at least the beginnings of a solid foundation in leadership. Well, if you take it into the family, you know, when you are in a married relationship, you have an accountability to your spouse. And when you're a parent, you have an accountability to your children. Clearly, you're in a leadership position. Right. But you still have an accountability to them. And the accountability oftentimes is just being able to live out that integrity you were talking about that you will try to do as you say, you will walk as you talk. And when you do not do that, when you stumble, they're, they're, it's a safe enough place for them to say, hey, there's something not right there. You're, you're, not, you're not walking like you're talking, and, and they can keep you accountable, and then you can, you can you know, pick yourself back up, get back on track, and, and move forward. I, that's, that's the biggest goal. It's not a, it's not a uh, penalty box situation. We're talking about making sure you continue to move forward in a favorable way. Yeah. I especially see that too, especially as I'm raising, um, as my, I got four kids and four daughters and the two oldest are teenagers and seeing and creating that environment. You hit it on the head. You said a phrase there. If you can, um, make it a safe place and a place where when someone does stumble that you can show with, um, unconditional love with forgiveness and everything else and, and hold them accountable. um, I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, you can see. I think the the, the key word that you said there is the safe the safe environment. And if you can create an environment at work and at home where people feel comfortable in challenging, it's one of the things I always like to say. It's not your right to challenge; it's your obligation to challenge. And I think that goes in every aspect of life, be it work and in the family. Well, you know, I I had the opportunity to work with a lot of great leaders that more more people would recognize, and probably the name that people recognize more than anyone else is John Chambers, who is the CEO of Cisco Systems. And, you know, John started there in, like, 92, and I started there in 92, and he came in as a North American vice president of sales or something along those lines, and was clearly, you know, intended to be the heir apparent to John Mordridge, who was CEO at the time and chairman of the board. And, of course, he worked his way up, was greatly successful. I mean, he's, he's just a global rock star when it comes to being a, uh, an ex-CEO. I mean, he worked heads of state. He works with everyone else. But I had the opportunity to work right next to him on many, many things. I ran our government organization for a long time. And we had a couple things that were kind of really crazy for a while, like uh, when uh, President Clinton came into place, they shut down the federal government's spending capability. And when that's your only customer, that's a very interesting scenario to find yourself in. You know, and, and the only thing you can do is lead your organization through the difficult times. And we had other things that came up where, you know, some things didn't go as planned in the business plan. And I remember standing across from the convention center in D.C. one time before we were going into the show, came out of the Hyatt with John, and we were talking about different things. And he stopped me and he said, James, he goes, I want to tell you something. Because you don't know someone's character until you see them under a stressful situation. Then their true character comes out. He goes, and I've seen you can have to deal with lately. Really glad to have you on the team. <laughs> well, gosh, I about, I about floated across the, I the street, you know. Yeah. yeah, it just was a wonderful affirmation. 
But the thing was, is it wasn't because we were succeeding. It was because we were failing. And you were seeing how we were failing, the character that was coming forward during those very stressful times. Now, we recovered, and we took what was, at that time, maybe one of the worst organizations in the company and turned it into one of the best organizations in the company, growing like 300% in two years. We're talking about government business growing 300% in two years. Uh So it was a big, big deal. But the thing was, at the moment, it was it was going nowhere fast. There were lots of challenges, and uh, you know the failings were there. And a lot of different people would have reacted in different ways. And and uh, and it was safe. It was safe to kind of fail forward. Now, of course, John expected us to turn it around. He expected us to succeed because it's a business, and you've got to find people who are going to be successful as well. But it, but the point was that in the in the short term, there was a need to allow for some stumbling. And then that allowed us then to be successful going forward. What do you think some of the key aspects or the key uh, ingredients helped that or fueled that turnaround? Well, I think some of the key ingredients had to do with staying focused on the long-term goal. You know, so often you take a data point, and and in fact, this is really much a struggle in a public company that you don't have in a private company, is, you know, Wall Street drives your 90-day cycle. And you've got to report every 90 days as to how you're doing bigger, better, faster. And so it's hard to maintain the long-term view. And you make some short-term decisions that are not necessarily optimal for the long-term. I think in leadership, you've got to keep a long-term view mm. at all times. Right. Because otherwise, it's just you just wander off. You get distracted from the, from the line you're really trying to follow. And that was one of the things that came in. I mean, we had a 10-year plan. We had a 5-year plan. We had a 3-year plan. We had a 90-day plan. But all those things were in alignment, and you had to keep that perspective for a longer view. I think that's one of the key ingredients at play. Yeah, no, I like – well, and I, if you think about it, I mean that's really one of the primary reasons why you have leaders in leadership is, is to kind of paint the intent, paint the big picture, paint the long-term vision. I mean that that, that is really your primary job, especially in a crisis situation. Well, it's, it's true, and I'll tell you. And, and to stay focused, and to stay focused on what's going on immediately. You know, I, I think of a, a story I've heard, and I believe it's a true story. I, I, I actually haven't talked about it to someone who can verify it for me, but it had to do with Chuck Yeager and him breaking through the sound barrier and the whole idea that when he was going through that, you know, they, they, they had this thing called the sound barrier because it was a wall that every time their experimental planes got to Mach 1, they fell apart and crashed into the ground. And so if he was gumming up on his flight, and they were approaching that speed, the plane started to shake violently, and they lost you know, any type of communication with them. They heard a big boom, and they assumed that he had crashed. And what it was was the first sonic boom. And what he, he described later was that as he approached that wall, and it was shaking so violently, that he just kept focused on his controls and kept focused on flying, and all of a sudden, they broke through Mach 1, broke through the sound barrier, and in the, in the plane leveled out into smooth flight. And I think in the leadership, that's part of what's going on, is you have a long-term range that you're looking at, and then when things are really intense, and it's all shaking and rattling and rolling as you're reaching that goal, that leader also has to keep people focused. You know, you just, just got to stay focused. Right. You can't do anything other than work on the immediate thing that's in front of you, and that's another really important part of the leadership. Yeah, I've always argued that uh, you know leaders are made or broken, especially in crisis situations. It's easy to be one when things are good, but when it's bad, that's when you said that's when the real character comes out. That's when the real you really learn 
the truth about somebody and, and an organization when bad things happen. I saw it a lot, especially in the training and when in high stressful situations and you'd see people early on who kind of, you know, like, wow, people automatically gravitated towards them because they were the charismatic picture perfect leader. But then when things got stressful with lack of sleep and uh, things were on the line, you saw a few of them crumble and it just the whole perspective changed. And it was weird how some of the the natural leaders, the quiet ones, the ones that are steadfast or solid in their character kind of emerged and kind of rose to the top. Did you see that type, same type of situation at Cisco or any other organization that you've been in when you were faced with a crisis or, or, a, or a bad situation? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's surprising. We, we talk about who you really want to have in the trenches with you. And, and uh, the person who is flamboyant, charismatic, you know, very attractive, isn't always the person who keeps their cool right. and is able to execute under pressure. And, and sometimes you have these people who are, they're just not as pretty, you know. They just don't come off as solid, but they're quiet. They're, they're, they're people who are going to be able to stay, you know, focused, as I mentioned, during the crisis point. They're going to be able to stay clear-minded on the long-term goals. And they're the ones that are going to emerge as your leaders uh, as time goes forward. I would bet that if you took 10 people who you say, okay, these are our emerging leaders we're going to fast-track, and then you see who actually emerges, that only two or three of them are really going to be in the final grouping of leaders at a higher level that you thought starting off. And that's why you have to grow your leaders. You can't just choose your leaders. You absolutely have to grow them. Yep. And I mean, even in the John thing I was talking about with uh, John Chambers, I mean, John was clearly the heir apparent from the day he stepped into the company, but he had to still, he still had to go through the paces of filling, you know, North America and worldwide sales and you know, CEO, and then, you know, on and on. I mean, he had to go through those things because everyone who he was leading, and and they needed to see him be able to lead in those stressful times. And it was the same thing with me. I mean, I started off in a, a regional position, and I was in a, uh, an area position, and I ended up being in a, uh, a vice president responsible for a whole segment of our business. I mean, and, you know, by the time I had left, we were, we were responsible for 24% of the business of the company was associated with government business. And when we started, it was 5%, but it just grew over time because our markets changed and it became a very important piece. But you can't just plug someone into that at the very top. they got to grow into it. Yeah. Where's, I care to curiosity, where's, what is Cisco doing now? I'm, I must admit, I'm kind of naive to what, what they've been doing recently. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because everyone likes to talk to me about Cisco, and I've not a Cisco, you know, for seven years as well. And, you know, Cisco is this slowly grown in market share. They're, you know, a $40 billion company. I left them when they were $26 billion, and I started with them when they were $360 million. So they just continue to grow. What they, are, what they are doing is moving into different markets that are more software-based and are more solution-based and are more enterprise-based. And it used to be they were all kind of behind the scenes, and now they're pretty much, you know, on your desktop. People pick up Cisco phones, you know, and they're used to seeing that, whereas back in the day that was not the case at all. So they're continuing to grow and grow steadily. I think that they have the challenge that every large company has that, you know, another billion-dollar market doesn't do that much to move the needle for them because they're $40 billion in size. It's just a big challenge. When you're a large company, volume is like, it has an issue in and of itself. Right. I mean, complexity is an issue and volume is an issue. And, and, and large, large companies like that are... They have a volume issue that we can few of us can really understand. So. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned you, you left there in 2008, and it has been uh, <clears throat> seven years. 
you know, you've been involved in a lot of charitable, charitable organizations throughout your life, you know, from your local church to Habitat to Humanities, and I guess a lot of your consulting since uh, you left Cisco has been with non, non, non-for-profit organizations. Tell me about that. Tell me about that transition. Tell me what you're involved with now and then how, how – well, the, oh, go ahead. Well, uh, two things, I guess. One is, is that, you know, when you're very busy running around the world trying to grow uh, one of the fastest-growing computer companies that's ever been, you know, you don't have a lot of time to give, but you tend to make a lot of money. And so at one time I was throwing a lot of dollars at those good organizations that were doing great works throughout the world. And what I had done when I retired out of Cisco was I wanted to give them time as well. And, and that was something that they desperately needed, that they just couldn't afford. And so I started consulting with them and being able to provide the type of executive leadership and relationship development that they just, they just couldn't have from, other, from others, you know. So it was a nice change. It was a very pleasant change. But I'll tell you, it was very different because it was much like a meteor coming in through the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're working at a Cisco, you're working with a bunch of thoroughbreds, and you're running like that Kentucky Derby Preakness, you know, type right. situation where it's neck and neck and on and on, and you expect everyone to be that excellent with you. But when you have, uh, when you have uh, come into a not-for-profit organization that doesn't work at that pace, they work in a different kind of set of parameters they're looking for, it's very difficult to almost slow down so that you're a useful instrument for them at times. Right. So I think that the big thing I learned there was is that uh, very high-capacity people often have to um, have to tailor their skill set to meet the environment they're leading in. You know, a, a certain type of leader doesn't fit in all environments, and so you can't have a thoroughbred, you know, plowing the field. But you could have a leadership problem, you know, but you, you got to make sure it's the right type of leader for the right environment. That was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned as I tried to assist and continue to assist those organizations. So they're strong and powerful organizations, but they're just different, very different than what you have in the corporate world. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I knew, I was, became friends with a, um, he runs the, the uh, American Red Cross, the chapter here. And he talked about that. And he said that it's, it's, that's one of his biggest challenges is the pace and the timing and coming from the private sector and, you know, and you're making this and deadlines and you still have deadlines and everything else. But it is, it's a different animal, you know, especially when you're dealing with most of your workforce as a volunteer force. And, um, it's very challenging. He said in a lot of ways he wasn't expecting. Well, it is, and it actually it calls for a different type of leadership. I think what it calls for even more so is a uh, a more personal leadership. Yeah. Because in the in the corporate world or in the government world, even in the education world, you know, there's positional leadership. It's it's, it's not that you're you're more uh, an authority rather than just a leader, but there is a, a certain amount of leadership goes to the person who's in a certain role. And, and in the corporate or in the uh, not for profit world, where you do have a lot of volunteer staff. The volunteers, in particular, need to have a connection, a personal connection to that leader, and then they want to they want to feel like they know them. They want to feel like they they uh, are able to uh, relate to them. And in order to do that, you have to be vulnerable. And you know, it's just you, you just you just got a picture a much more uh, open and broken lifestyle if you're going to lead in that environment. And I think that's part of the heart of leadership in the not-for-profit sector that is not as uh, it's probably just as needed, but it's not as it's not as common in the corporate sector. Yeah, you said something that I really keyed in on, and that's that you got to be vulnerable. I agree with you 100. percent And um, I would argue that 
some of these um, type A, high-paced, thoroughbred-type situations, I think sometimes I think that's what's lacking, what's needed um, in, in those type of scenarios, kind of a courageous vulnerability from some of these leaders. Do you agree with that, or what do you think? Well, you know, I'll tell you, one of the greatest compliments I received from former people who've been involved in, in organizations I was with is they'll say, you know, I just want to be in a massive organization. And, and when they're saying that, they're not talking about the company we were with. They're talking about the culture we created. They're talking about the environment we created. And I think that goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, Richard, where we were talking about integration. Because, you know, my children show up at company events. You know, they don't show up at all company events. You know, you do company events where they see, oh, hey, this person has family. You know, of course, now my boys are a lot older. I have four boys. And they were, when they were little, they were involved. And now they go from 15 to 25. And if, if there's an event where it's reasonable for them to be there, then they'll be there as well, you know, because people need to know there's a human being on the other side of that, mm-hmm. so I've always shown that in an integrated way, and with that comes a, uh, a certain amount of uh, credibility or a certain amount of willingness to have people follow you that far exceeds your positional authority. It has everything to do with your leadership at that point. So what's next for you? Where it's, uh, tell me what you're involved in now, and, and what's the future hold for you? Well, you know, there's two things going on. I saw... I watched the venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley, and they were all making uh, a lot of a lot of uh, changes in the world through the internet explosion and the high tech explosion, and that's still continuing. I mean, you, you see what's occurred with Facebook and how it's changed things, and Google how it's changed things, and with the verb, my gosh, you know, who creates a company becomes a verb, you know. So, mm-hmm. so there's there's lots of changes going on there. But what I saw them doing was they started focusing on energy. And they started focusing on green technologies, you know, both uh, green energy technologies and other technologies. And the, the, the size of that and the impact of that is just, you know, an order of magnitude higher than what any of the high-tech things were that I was involved in. So I am always looking for high impact, you know, what is going to change and transform a community and a world. And I, and I believe there's a couple key things that are there, and one of those things has to do with these green technologies that are coming out, the energy sector, which is still out there, and how we're going to be able to, on this planet, you know, go forward in such a way that we're, we're able to be good stewards of what's going on, yet also be able to be good business people of what's going on. So I'm, I'm looking for opportunities there. I've gotten myself involved with several of them. I've worked in geothermal technology and biodiesel technology and a very cool waste energy technology. So I'm shifting a little bit more back into the corporate world, and, and I'm doing so because I think that the corporate world and the not-for-profit world are actually starting to see a way to work together more to impact and transform communities around them, and, and it has to do with the relationship between the two, so I'm, I'm heavily involved with trying to learn that and trying to advance that from the, uh, from the growth company perspective in the communities around the world. What advice would you give to Maybe someone who's uh, just starting out their career, kind of the middle of the career. Best leadership advice you could give somebody? Hmm, gosh, I wish I'd have had that question before you interviewed. I'd have a good answer for you, you know, and you get them off the cuff. I'm afraid I'm going to hang up with you and say, oh, I wish I'd have said that. <laughs> no, so I apologize for putting you on the top. I was just, I was just generally curious. I know I should have probably prepped you with that one, but I, I think, you know, um, you have so much experience in so many aspects. I mean, it's exciting to hear uh, what you've gone through. I think that, and if you could just put yourself in that position, if what you you know, kind of the what you wish you would have known then type of thing. You know, we always do that every now and then. 
and uh, that's kind of what I'm digging well, I, for. I, I, I think I think one of the things that is the hardest for me to have learned is uh, you don't you you might know. Well, I guess let me reframe it. I think I would ask this question: Do you really know that more often? Do you really know what's going on mm. in a situation? Do you really know what motivates somebody to do something? And, and here's the axiom that I would give every leader. People do things for a reason. They always do things for a reason. They may not even know what that reason is. And it may be something as, as uh, obvious as is that they're, they're trying to reach some goal. It may be they're greedy. It may be that they're very charitable. It may be that they're nice. It may be a lot. But they do things for a reason. And you don't always know what that reason is. And so to assume the motivations of someone, whether it be an individual, whether it be a not-for-profit or company, or whether it even be a government, you really have to say, do I really know that? And, and the younger I was, the more certain I was that I knew what was going on. Right. <laughs> and, and the older I become, the more certain I am that there's probably things I don't know. And I just kind of trust the fact that people are doing things for a reason and, and, and also realize that sometimes they don't even know why. And let me give you a good example. This is a not-for-profit good example, but that kind of applies to both areas. I was working on an alliance between a not-for-profit organization that was called Crown Financial Ministries and an organization called Saddlebrook, which, is, which was uh, one of the largest churches that are out there, purpose-driven life and all that thing is all part of Saddlebrook. So... When we were talking about what was being done, there was there was the agreement was ready to be signed, and and the the executive that is that was involved with that was ready to sign it. Then all of a sudden he wouldn't return the calls. I mean, it it drove us. It was such a big deal. We were all excited. Everything was lined up. We could not figure it out. And without just giving too many names and details of the transaction itself, that the, the end result was is the guy had the guy had given his resignation, oh. and it was the end of the year. And he wanted the new president to sign the document, but he hadn't, he hadn't come in yet, and none of this was been made, made public. So he was protecting our relationship. He was making sure the new president had as much commitment to the relationship as he did when he was forming it. But from the, from our perspective, it was like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, mm-hmm. what's he doing? He's dragging his feet. You know, there's all this, we thought the motivation was anything but that he was actually doing us a great favor. And doing this, and, and giving us great favor, and then it turned out, you know, that January one rolled around. They announced everything. January three, the deal was signed. Everybody goes forward, and everybody's happy. And I actually called him up and apologized. He said, "You know, James, I had no way of telling you. I was underneath an agreement that I couldn't tell anyone because of their management of their age. And I just had to let you, you know, sit there in the strain of what was going on. And this just was a good example. And that was long in my more experienced years, if you want to call it that." But I was still making that mistake that I was assuming I knew what was happening, and I really didn't know what was happening. So I think that would probably be the advice I would give any young leader is to ask yourself, do you really know that? And, and, and I'll tell you what I find myself saying to the young, young leaders when they come up. I'll say, I don't know that. They'll say something to me. I don't know that to be true. How do you know that to be true? Yeah. And, and then you start diving down into it, you know, and figuring out, well, we really don't know that. We assume this. We assume that. We assume, you know. But that, I think that's a key thing to, to get, get past in your leadership area because once you start dealing with reality and the reality that you don't know everything, you can lead in a very different way. Yeah, that's great advice. And it reminds me of I had a couple of some of my 
favorite mentors said almost that exact same thing in various ways. One said, you know, I would go in there and I would, you know, be all excited and say, this is the solution. And he would, he would say pretty much the same thing you said. Do you know that for sure? Is that a fact or an assumption? That's what he would always say. And it would drive me crazy. And I'm like, well, he goes, is it a fact or an assumption? Well, it's an assumption. But nine times out of 10, that's what it was, you know? And he goes, get the facts. He goes, he goes, facts are our friends. And that was the other thing he would always say that would drive me crazy. But I say, now I find myself saying it too, you know, he goes, facts are our friends. He says, don't assume, find out. And he would say that too, because I don't know. I don't know that. And um, you, you, it's surprising, and that, that's what really kind of struck me is how often we do jump to conclusions right away. And I agree with you. I think one of the, the things if, if, you know, to, to help you in your leadership career is you've got to exercise that emotional intelligence, and that's really what you're getting at, is, you, is you're having the emotional intelligence to empathize and see something from a different perspective, and that's very challenging to do when you really think about it. It is. It is. It really is because we all want to be right. We all want to move faster than what we really should. And although there is great value, I I sat and listened to Colin Powell one time. This was when he was Secretary of State. He was talking to a bunch of CEOs. They were all communication company CEOs. And his his message to them was that he made decisions when he only had 40, 50, 60% of the information. He couldn't wait to have all the information Mm -hmm. because that's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs seen you getting to the battlefield ahead of their competition, ahead of your adversary, and laying the landscape down was very, very important so that you were there and in position, I mean, rather than having to come up upon someone. And he would do that even in the political level, where if he'd want to be inside the decision cycle of the leaders of the world, he would know information and be able to act in a fast way in communication accordingly. So, so there is great value in being able to make decisions Absolutely. quickly. Absolutely, yeah. But the difference was, as he was saying, I know I don't know. I know I only have 40, 50, 60, exactly. 70% yeah. information, you know, <laughs> rather than the other way around. Saying, oh, I know, I know what's going to happen here. Because what it does is it makes you then more prepared to be able to change your, change your mind or make the next decision. You know, like if you get nine out of ten decisions right, you're still having to make another decision to correct something you were wrong on. That's right. And who among us is going to say we make 100% of our decisions correctly, you know? So you just got to be prepared to make that next decision, and that next decision is going to be a correction to somewhere where you were wrong. Right. You don't think about it that way, you know, so... Well, I think that's great advice, James. I mean, I'm sorry to stump you on it, but I think you, you had a, a home run answer there. I think it. Um, I agree. With that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's valuable to your list. Oh yeah, you. definitely. Well, as we wrap things up, um, any are you a big reader? Is there anything any good? What are you reading these days? Well, you know, I appreciate that question, and, and I actually had gotten into reading a lot of different things. I, I but I spend a lot of time reading. Uh, people who have been leaders from decades ago who were in crisis, you know, the, the Churchills of the mm-hmm. world, you know, biographies about, about, uh, like Truman. I mean, just, you know, things like that are important to me because, because there you're dealing with now something that enough time has gone by that there is a little bit more, this is what was really going on. You know, there is more knowledge about what happened. And you see the vacuum between the leadership decisions and the things that were made versus the reality in which they were working in. Mm-hmm. And it, it, there's, a, there's a great amount to learn learn there. Um, and, it, and you know, my, my whole worldview is I'm a, I'm a Christian man, and so I, I spend a lot of time reading the Bible, to tell you the honest truth. I, I spend every morning doing that. It's always surprising to me that I, I walk away with something I, I learned long ago and forgotten, and then I can bring back into my uh, my daily application, you know. So 
that worldview is so important to me that I think that's worth spending the time on as well. Well, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I think, you know, the more it's probably one of the greatest leadership books ever written, to be quite honest. And um, if you look at it that perspective as a leader, I didn't really start doing that till a few years ago. And But, uh, man, it is chock full of leadership. Straightforward well, comments you know, leadership. Me, I'll give you something I think is very important there, and I, we didn't spend much time on it. I don't really know how the, how the conversations go with all the other leaders you'll be dealing with who are both, uh, you know, I guess secular and otherwise. But, you know, the key there was relationship. And, and what I am involved in more than anything else, what I do in my consulting, if you look on my little website, you see that it's relationships to transform. And it's really all about the relationship. I think that leadership has to do with relationship as much as anything else. Yep. Because when you have relationship, it goes so far in being able to have people uh, trust that they can follow you or listen to what your advice is or however the influence is. I mean, you can have a huge bank account and not have nearly as much influence as you do if you have a relationship. Yep. I agree. I mean, yeah, you, you really hit that on the head. I mean, that's the whole point of it. That, and I think an authentic relationship, too. I think I, 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 people may get sick of me on this podcast talking about those buzzwords, buzzwords, but that's kind of my whole idea is this courageous authenticity. And in that is having an authentic, vulnerable relationship. And to me, I think that is the key to everything, to everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I would echo that from you as well. Well, James, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad I've met you. I'm so glad I'm, you're in my network and I'm and – I'm, how can people find you? Obviously, I'll have links to it, but you mentioned your website. Is there something where people can get in touch with you if you're still getting consulting, or how can they find you? Well, in fact, they can go to uh, you know www.loom, like the Weaver's Tool, L-O-O-M-L-L-C.com. That's my website for consulting. And, in fact, I'm just going to be announcing soon an ebook that's going to be coming out, and that should be available in the next three days. And so... Uh, I'll make you aware of that, by the way, and I'll make others aware of it. That's going to be on leadership. It's going to be on forming relationships that are successful and avoiding those that are are damaging. And I call it the uh, six-strand weave, which has to do with strength of a relationship. There's really six principles that go into that, and the seventh one I I tell people about at the very end. But I have used those six principles in all aspects of my business and non-business not-for-profit and for-profit life, and what I find is it's just ground truth. So I'll look forward to making you aware of that, but they'll be able to find it on that website as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. When it comes out, I'm excited. I'm excited to read that, and uh, when it does, I'll update my post appropriately, and we'll make sure we'll have a link to that. And I'll also send it out to my uh, emailing list, my mailing list to my fans and uh, my subscribers. So uh, that'll be awesome. Look forward to that. Great. Great. Well, I appreciate that. So, I'm glad I was able to join you. I hope it's been beneficial. Oh, James, it's more than you realize. I mean, I think it was great. It's fun. I always like talking to folks, uh, you know, who, like you said before the conversation, you said that you were felt like you're in the uh, not maybe not worthy of the guests, but uh, that's farthest from the truth. I mean, I like the, the everyday people who actually lived it and, and been in the trenches and, and made things happen. And you're definitely one of those folks. So, thank you for giving us a dose today, and, and thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Have a great day. See you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook. 
a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. 